It's Friday, July 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Six months after the coronavirus appeared in America, the nation's ineffective responses failed to contain it. There is no unified national response, and everything about it has become politicized. Testing continues to remain a problem with long wait lines to be tested and to get results, which also makes contact tracing useless. While other countries were able to drive infection rates down, it seems that opening the country back up too soon and without proper guidelines may have been the biggest mistake. Joel Achenbach, reporter for The Washington Post, joined us for America's response to the coronavirus. Next, one of Hollywood's biggest moneymakers is slowly being killed off. Cable TV continues its decline as streaming services ramp up subscribers and entertainment companies return to more niche programming, also seeking to host their properties on streamers. Experts suggest that cable subscriptions will bottom out in the next few years, forcing companies to invest more in new media. Kate Arthur, editor-at-large at Variety, joins us for how cable TV is struggling for survival. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. As cases and fatalities rise in certain hard-hit states, which you're looking at right now, we're surging personnel, supplies, and therapeutics. We, again, have tremendous amounts of supplies. We are in very good shape, and we can move them quickly. Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Thanks for having me. wanted to bring you on and talk a little bit about perspective, a little bit about America's response to the coronavirus. It has not gone so well. Six months after the coronavirus appeared in America, it's been a failure in many, many points when it comes to testing, a unified national response. We've talked about how contract tracing early on was going to be the big thing to really stamp everything out and identify people, have everybody isolate. With all the cases surging and so many going around, it's almost impossible to do proper contact tracing right now. And the messaging from the leadership. The leadership is such an important thing. We're hearing things all over the place. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. And then beyond that, President Trump just all over the place, really, on this whole thing. Joel, tell us about the response by the country. You cover a lot of bases there that I think that need to be focused on, including the messaging. The virus is very contagious. The experts have said all along, going back to early April, when we had the first big wave of cases, they said, we can do these interventions like social distancing, shutting down businesses and schools and trying to isolate the sick. You can do all that. That's really the only tool you have. And you will see success if you do that, which is what happened. But they all said, don't ease up too quickly. Don't open up the economy too quickly. Don't go back to business too quickly because it'll come roaring back. And what you want to do is get the number of infections down to a low level before you reopen. Because if you have a lot of virus still in circulation, then when you reopen, you're going to have more contacts between people and and you're going to see a resurgence. And unfortunately, that's what we've seen in many parts of the country is some of the states just opened up too quickly. And a lot of it's human psychology. We were sick of the shutdowns. We wanted to go out and do things. Everyone tired of being in quarantine. So 
individual behavior became less cautious. And then you saw the result. You know, you saw a lot of young people in particular who were like, hey, I'm going to go to the bar. And those bars became centers of, of viral transmission. And so the caseloads went up. And when the caseloads go up, eventually you're going to see hospitalizations. We have seen that. And then some of those hospitalizations become really serious cases with people in the ICU or on a ventilator, and then, and then the deaths go up. So it's been dismaying because we knew this would happen if we were not more careful, and now it's happened. And the psychology of that, I think, is very important. While people were pent up and frustrated with being on lockdown, we were still doing it. We were still participating at that point. And once everything opened back up, it's like nobody wanted to go back into the box. But there's a bunch of states that paused their reopening plans. They're talking about how Los Angeles might be the first big city to go back into a lockdown if things keep getting worse. So definitely just reopening too quickly and without enough strict guidelines on that reopening kind of set us back a lot. How about the response from other countries? Because there's a lot of countries to look toward that have gotten things under control. They're not having like a second wave, things like that. But we're still having difficulty with that. Many other countries have done better at preventing that resurgence. Everywhere in the world is basically facing the same viral threat. But our country is, is a little different from a lot of countries. And we're a big, sprawling country in which we've seen that it's taken a while for the virus to really take off in some places like the Deep South after it initially flared in New York. But many of the other countries, if you look at you know Germany, they prevented widespread transmission. They have not had that many deaths per capita. France, even hard hit Italy and Spain, they were really devastated by it, but they've managed to suppress the resurgence. I mean, Europe has in general. Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, a lot of many places in the in East Asia have done a very good job of controlling it. And so one of the questions that people ask is, why are we in the U.S. struggling so much? There's no simple answer. We talked a lot about the political polarization and dysfunction and the failure to have a unified message, the moments of kind of science denial, of minimizing it. That didn't help. But we're also a country that has some underlying health issues, chronic diseases and comorbidities. Just as an example, the obesity is a very high rate in the U.S. compared to a place like Japan. So I think that we also have underinvested in public health services in this country. And so just at the county level, you have these county health departments that are struggling with some of the, the basics day to day of testing and contact tracing and monitoring the problems in their own communities. And certainly if you have a testing system in which it takes a week to get a result. And my, my eldest daughter, it took her eight days to get a result. And it's that kind of prevents any meaningful contact tracing, because by the time you, you know if you actually have the virus, you could have spread it to other people. Of course, if you're careful, you'll just stay at home. But it would be nice to have results on the spot, you know, or, or within a day or two. And so that's been a disappointment, the whole testing regime in the country. Noted in your article, there's a project called the Global Health Security Index. This is spearheaded by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the Nuclear Threat Initiative. And they rank countries on their pandemic preparedness. 
And the U.S. ranked number one. They had a score of 83.5 out of 100. I know, like, one of the big things is we have so many people in the country. The population is huge. So the numbers are always going to be inflated compared to a lot of countries. But we got caught so flat-footed by this thing. And it just, uh, I, <laughs> you spoke to somebody from that project. They said, how did the U.S. get so caught flat-footed by not really trying? And it seemed like we kept trying to say it's not going to happen here early on. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be a big deal. And then it just became so huge to us. It was an issue that the federal government decided to pass along a lot of the responsibilities to the states and the, and the local governments. And it's true that healthcare is a local matter in general, but with a virus like this that can cross state lines, you have to have a really strong national unified federal response with consistent standards. You have to use the bully pulpit to tell people, wear a mask, take this seriously. You can't send mixed messages. And, and, and it was, it's been tragic that it has gotten drawn into the culture wars and sort of political identification. You know, if you wear a mask, it signifies maybe that you're a liberal. It is, it's silly because it's not a political partisan issue. Right. Obviously, no one wants to be in a shutdown. And there are economic costs to being in shutdowns, huge economic costs. And with that comes health costs if people aren't going to the doctor. I mean, it's a complicated problem to address, but other countries seem to have handled the crisis more deftly than the U.S. has. And so what we wrote in our article is that this pandemic has exposed some of our issues in this country, like the fact that we are so polarized and everything is so divisive here and we don't act in unison the way we could. That, that kind of thing it has, has been exposed by this crisis and clearly we need to do better. I think in theory we could do better than we've done. And, you know, going back to the leadership angle, it wasn't until this week that the president tweeted out saying, hey, it's some people say it's uh, patriotic to wear a mask. And, uh, you know, I'm there's nobody more patriotic than me, I, uh, your favorite president, a picture of him wearing a mask. You know, it wasn't really until this week that the president kind of, quote unquote, endorsed wearing face masks. And then even early on, when we look to the CDC and our health experts at first, they were kind of wobbly on that. And then, you know, now they are endorsing wearing masks completely. So, I mean, even that that plays in the minds of people as well, too. Who to believe everybody's kind of against each other. And that is just such a difficult thing to score away when we really do need this unified response to try to stamp this thing down. This is also an interesting crisis in the sense that an individual can do something. If you think about many of the world's problems as an individual, it's hard to know, you know what can I do? Well, in, in this situation, what you can do is wear a mask and do whatever you can to not spread the virus, not take actions that feed the continued transmission. And because it can be spread asymptomatically, you don't know if you have it or not. You know, you could be walking around with the coronavirus and not realize it. And typically, it's, it's odd, typically you spread it about a day or two before you develop any symptoms. And when you develop symptoms, you tend to not be shedding very much virus anymore because your body's immune system is, is getting on top of it. And of course, the symptoms you suffer, but over with each successive day, you shed less virus. So it's a very tricky passage, that's for sure. 
there's a long way to go still in fighting this. And, and, you know, obviously I just hope for everyone that we can get our act together with it and, and hopefully uh, at least limit the spread as we keep going. Joel Achenbach, reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Who wants a basic cable package now, considering they can run up to $150, $200 for lots and lots of channels that you don't necessarily watch? And in the age of Netflix, which is $14.99, I think, you can get tons of shows as you enumerated there. Joining us now is Kate Arthur, editor-at-large at Variety. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks for having me. wanted to talk about cable TV and how this big moneymaker for Hollywood is slowly dying. I mean, we hear these stories all the time with the rise of streaming, Netflix, and all the other streamers that are out now, and how people are cutting the cord and getting away from traditional cable TV. But it's just getting worse and worse for them right now. And all a lot of these networks are down in their viewership and even the entertainment companies are starting to gravitate more towards streamers. You know, Netflix released like a ton of original programming. I think just for the month of July, it was about 60 different things that they were releasing that was all original. So it's just getting really crazy on that front. So, Kate, tell us a little bit about cable TV. Basic cable, which is channels like USA and Bravo and MTV and Comedy Central those are channels that come with your basic cable package and things like HBO, Showtime, those are extra. The question is, who wants a basic cable package now, considering they can run up to $150, $200 for lots and lots of channels that you don't necessarily watch? And in the age of Netflix, which is $14.99, I think, you can get tons of shows as you enumerated there. Like you could get everything you want there. You can't get CNN or live television, but there are other ways of doing that. And so more and more people are cutting the cord, which means just quitting their cable subscriptions and getting that programming, whether it's live sports or news elsewhere. And that is a potential disaster for the cable industry, which is what we wrote about this week. On that front, these streamers are kind of more curated things. You you can still get all that a lot of that same programming that you're getting on the cable shows, on the basic cable packages, but it's much more streamlined in these other things. You had an example about MTV and kind of how their trajectory has been. And in late June, they were showing 113 hours of uh, their 168-hour lineup. They were just showing nothing but reruns of the Ridiculousness show with Rob Deerdick. But that was the move that was kind of working for them at that moment. And continues to be, I think. I mean, that was actually when we noticed that that was actually the impetus for this story, which had been kind of bubbling up for a couple of years, I think, um, in Mike Schneider, who is my co-writer's mind. But when we realized that MTV had basically turned into a channel that's airing solely the show Ridiculousness, which is basically YouTube videos hosted by Rob Deerdeck. That was it. We had to do the story. The funny thing is that I found myself 
watching <laughs> a bunch of those episodes, so I know that all too well. But but uh, but it it's worked. but it's you know they're doing that. Other networks like Food Network saw a huge rating spike during you know this whole pandemic that's been closed down because uh, people were watching cooking shows and getting inspired by that. But they were saying that a lot of basic cable channels are kind of returning their 80s origins, low-cost programming, mm-hmm. unscripted programming. Cable started out being for niches. Like it was like MTV was for music and Food Network was for food. HDTV was for home, people obsessed with home building. And it's kind of returning to that. And the channels that were duking it out in the 2000s to be almost like HBO's or even broadcast networks like NBC, TNT, USA, FX, and even Sci-Fi Channel, which had great scripted TV, those are the ones that are in the most trouble because their cost basis is too high. They can't compete with Netflix. They can't. And so the mega conglomerates that own them are investing in the streaming parts of the business in Peacock, which is NBC Universal's streaming service, which launched last week, um, in HBO Max, which is Warner Media's service uh, that launched uh, last month, and so on. You know, I mean, the ones that are going to be in the most trouble are the ones that don't have a streaming partner right. as part of their corporate conglomerate, AMC. Viacom CBS, which even though it has Showtime and CBS All Access, those aren't as robust as, say, Disney Plus or Hulu, both of which Disney owns. And so what does the future look like for these? Because a lot of them are trending towards taking care of their intellectual properties, making sure those end up on streamers and kind of continue on. Uh, I think you mentioned in the article, it, it really, it's for the next several years, it's going to look like these companies are keeping one foot in the old sense of the media and then uh, another foot in investing in the new in the streaming and all these things like that one of the experts you spoke to said give it about 10 years and this ba- whole basic cable thing won't be the same anymore a statistic that mike schneider got as part of his reporting was that forecasters think the bottom will be 30 million subscribers to basic cable and the high being over 100 million in 2010 And, you know, that is still a business. That is still something where people can make money, but it's going to have to be at a much lower cost. And the dual revenue stream, which is what cable channels feasted on because they got money not only from advertising, but from the cable providers paying the channels to be on their service. Comcast pays AMC for the right to air it. That was the thing that really printed cash um, at, at basic cable's height. And those MVPDs, which is what they're called, um, they're not going to want to pay top dollar for channels that have almost no linear viewers, which is what people watching live, live television. Well, we've been seeing it happen for a long time. Uh, we'll see how much longer uh, these cable channels can last and, and really what the land, media landscape is going to continue to look like, you know, all the rise of the streamers, there's so many options there now. Uh, it's going to continue to keep changing. Kate Arthur, editor at large at variety. Thank you very much for joining us. Oscar. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at daily dive pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.